This episode of I'll Go First is brought to you by Acura, leading the way in auto innovation for over 30 years. Keep listening to discover how Acura sees things differently in the pursuit of precision-crafted performance. You never think that it would happen to you. Like, yeah. stories are always so removed, specifically when it comes to fundraising. But they did. They happened to us. Hi, I'm Takara Small, and this is I'll Go First from The Globe and Mail. This is not your average tech podcast. We're going beyond the headlines and behind the million dollar deals to chat with innovators and industry trailblazers. On this episode... My name is Huda. I'm the founder and CEO of Dot Health, a personal health information platform for Canadians to access their own health information. So let's just say you're sick, hypothetically. You go to the doctor, they do a few tests, they give you all the results. Then you realize you're going to be seeing a series of doctors who all need to work together. It's your health, but you don't own any of the data. So that means every time you see a physician, you have to request it. Sometimes you even have to pay to get it printed. You're always waiting for your information to be shared with you. That's where Hada Adris comes in. Hada is the brains behind Dot Health. She has been building companies since she was 12 years old in Saudi Arabia. She's young, but she's been in the tech space for a very long time. Can you explain to me what Dot Health does? So, what Dot Health really does is we create a way for you on your phone or on a computer to look at all of your own hospital information or all your own clinic information. So if you've ever gone to the doctors and you've gotten a flu shot or if you've ever gone uh, to a lab to get some blood tests, then all of those reports and information will stay updated on your phone if you're on .health. Oh, that sounds amazing. Okay, so why would a Canadian want that? Why would they need that? The biggest use case for us is typically people managing um, their family's health information. So earlier this year, over 5,000 kids were suspended from school because their parents couldn't find the little yellow vaccination yes. cards. Yeah. That's a really big use case for a huge disruption to a family unit mm -hmm. uh, to not be able to access a piece of information that's going to stop your kid from being able to go to school. You know, parents trying to keep everything together, um, that's really difficult if it's bits of paper that you can misplace. Mm -hmm. And all of this information actually lives electronically on some systems. Oh, so it's already there. It's already there. The access to it, though, is completely uh, blocked off because of arcane processes. Healthcare is the slowest of all sort of major industries, if you think about finance or if you think about um, Education, healthcare has been the slowest of all to adopt mm -hmm. uh, technology of any kind. So companies like ours and others can actually help bridge this gap in a big way. I think what's incredible is the fact that you know, you're so young and you're so accomplished and you're working and uh, disrupting a field that for a very long time has been arcane. Tell me a little bit about what that's like. I didn't start in the healthcare field. Mm -hmm. I went to school for engineering. I'm in many ways removed from the healthcare industry. So a bit of the reason behind uh, sort of jumping into this concept of dot health was a bit of naivete on my side where I was like, well, there's a thing. I know how to build things that people use. Mm -hmm. I know how to make them super seamless and I know how to engage people. What can I, how, how can, how can this improve healthcare? And when I first sort of stumbled upon this concept of dot health, I was building it for one person. 
It was my friend's dad. He had been diagnosed with late stage cancer and he was having a lot of trouble trying to keep up with everything that his doctors were sort of throwing at him. So he was going through chemotherapy. There were lots of side effects for it and there was no way for him to see whether it was working or not, whether it was trending downwards or upwards. And so the very, very bare bones version of Dot Health, it wasn't even called that then. I just made what like What was a, the name? It was named actually nothing. It was his it was the patient's name dot app. And then and then that's it. Yeah. And it was just all of his own information. It was a trend line and it showed his cancer marker progress week over week. The big moment for us was when he started asking us to do very specific features for him. So he wanted to, for example, share this graph that we built for him with his doctor. I mean, in my head, I would have imagined healthcare systems to have this already, a way for patients and doctors to be able to see the same thing. Lo and behold, that's not true at all. Doctors look at their own electronic medical record systems on one side, and patients are completely removed from it. If they're lucky, they get a printout. Or if the patient is super motivated to actually capture all this information and take it maybe to another doctor for a second opinion, then they need to go down to you know, some basement and ask for their own health records, stand in line, fill out a form, and then they get it in the mail three weeks later. So it's a very paper-based process uh, that's quite manual and quite um, difficult to access, as you can imagine, for, for many people. What was that path towards entrepreneurship like for you? Did you always know you wanted to start your own company and build mm. something that helped other people? The starting your own company bit, it was sort of a, um, a little bit of a backdrop in my life. My dad is uh, a successful engineering entrepreneur as well. That was something that he always talked about. I was so close to it. He started his company when I was born. So at the time, I'm his fifth kid. So this was bonkers. I couldn't do it. Yeah. Um, he, he started it and took a giant risk. And it turned out really well for him, but I was very close to the process and I was very close to knowing how, how it works. And I ran my own um, web services company when I was a kid. I got into programming and then when I was 12, I realized people would pay me if I made websites for them. Uh, and so I did. And then yeah. I hired another person and it was like these two like little kids um, <laughs> making websites for a bunch of uh, businesses in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia. So I knew that there was something there where I liked the concept of, you know, the, the most cliche thing people say about being an entrepreneur is like being the master of your own destiny. Yeah. It's just like... So I like that idea, I think, a lot. Dot Health still, though, was a bit of an accident. I didn't really think I would be in healthcare. I didn't think I would be doing this specific problem. But I knew I wanted something with high impact. And my first sort of foray into it was really Wattpad, changed my life. So I went to engineering school, and a big part of the engineering program is doing a professional experience year. I had Google lined up at the time. Uh, it was an internship in design in their Mountain View headquarters, and I was pretty pretty set on Yeah, on that seems like that. a great placement. It was exciting. Google, I mean, Google's cool now, but it was very cool then. Oh, it, so it's not <laughs> as cool it's now. Very, I mean, now we're like considering whether Google is evil, et cetera. Oh, I but see what you But back then, mean. we all thought they were yeah. literally I mean, angels. It was in their, ban their mandate, <laughs> do no like, evil, right? So Precisely. Yeah. So that was sort of set. And then I saw Wattpad's uh, job posting. And uh, that was the only thing that I applied to because I already had Google and met with Alan, who's the CEO and, and one of the founders. And pitched him this idea of becoming his first design hire. 
he agreed, surprisingly. And I thought it would be a really good opportunity. It was a tiny, I think we were seven people, including me at the time. So yeah, I learned a ton. I would have, I would have done like a fraction of that at, at Google and definitely would not have started my own thing. just mentioned that you're one of five children. I'm one of six, actually. One of I have six? A kid brother. Yeah. Wow. Okay. <laughs> so tell me about your childhood. Like, did you grow up in Saudi Arabia? I did. And then you moved here? Tell me. Saudi is a very sort of sprawling desert land that needs a lot of development. It's very difficult to know about it because they're so closed off. Uh, but growing up there, I really love Jeddah is still one of my favorite cities um, in the world. It's very different from Toronto, but also very similar. There's lots of people from lots of different backgrounds that call Jeddah home. It's the sort of, you know, the most metropolitan of cities in the kingdom. Went to um, international schools where there were just kids from all over the world. So got a lot of exposure into different types of people, different uh, religions, different family units, uh, different ways of living for people. And yeah, my siblings and I got up to like a lot of mischief, but also... (laughs) But also did a lot of random little businesses. We used to, I remember one of our family friends got us these Japanese origami books and we made little origami jewelry and sold it to the girls in our class. And I was like six then. Our dad would sort of like help us along and and tell us how to do like basic bookkeeping yeah. or like basic invoicing. And I was there. I remember him writing his own invoices. Uh, so that was a lot of fun. So you, it seems like you've always been entrepreneurial. Bookkeeping, invoicing, I would be like an entrepreneur now. I would have been so much farther ahead, I think. We didn't have cable. So I you didn't have I cable. I didn't have cable. Everyone who grew up in Saudi can relate to this. We had like two TV channels, one in Arabic and one in English. Okay, and you yeah. you get like these dubbed cartoons in English. So like... I watched a lot of, um, I think it's Japanese anime. It's The White Lion. And we would get like, I don't know, like 20 minutes of cartoons, like a day. And that's it. What was Um, your favorite English show? Did you have one? I, there were a couple. So we got Sesame Street, which we really loved, and it wasn't that frequent. So we would only see it like once every two weeks or something. Mm. So that was that was a lot of fun, and we kind of liked the idea of Muppets, and we would make them actually at home. So we were like super crafty as like kids. Yeah. So we'd like make little like, you know, Oscar the Grouch or like Elmo, who was my favorite. It's amazing. So you had puppet shows. Yes. We did a lot of stuff sort of on our own to amuse ourselves. Now we have the internet, and kids have like iPads and they can be, you know, entertained forever. But we had to make our own entertainment. So we did everything from doing like puppet shows. I have very distinct memories of reenacting movies on our rooftop. I watched The Terminator way too young. <laughs> Shouldn't have. But there's like a a piece in the end where the Terminator who's evil in the first movie but like good in the second one. In the first one, he's like sort of damaged and sort of like struggling to like keep up and like crawling on the ground. And I distinctly have a memory of like reenacting that on my rooftop. It's great. I love it. <laughs> so um, what was it like immigrating to Canada? I came here as a, as a student. So I came here for undergrad. So I didn't move here with my family and I didn't really think I would stay. Um, so oh. my first impression of Toronto wasn't great. It was my um, my first winter here was quite bad. It was the winter of 08. There was like a giant blizzard and I had yeah. to walk to my calc exam fighting against a bunch of snow. Considered transferring out to a different university on the West Coast. You know, the, the one thing that I, I know is I didn't really have culture shock. 
which you know many people would find interesting because you would imagine Jeddah to be a whole other world from Toronto but the very many different kinds of people was very similar this like transient nature of the city was very similar uh, to what Jeddah is where it's the site of the pilgrimage so everybody flies yeah. into Jeddah to right. to do the annual pilgrimage so we see i mean millions of visitors every year, every year. yeah and so just speaking of your your time in university and, and the tech community and how it's grown, like what has it been like for you? Because you're a woman and you're a person of color and in, in the tech industry in Toronto and not just Toronto, but in several places. Isn't that diverse? I think I realized it too late. I remember being at an event where I thought, you know, it doesn't matter. It's a meritocracy. That's a myth. I know that now. People of color are minorities, even in a city like Toronto, where so many of us are born outside of the city, even in a city like this, they're discriminated against in a big way. And sometimes in, in blatant, obvious ways, and sometimes in some form of unconscious bias in hiring. And, you know, fundraising was interesting for Dot Health. That was, you know, that's when I... I could really tell that there was a difference between me and, you know, Joe Schmo fundraising. What were some of the difficulties you experienced? Often I would walk into a room of only men. I'm a solo founder, so I was fundraising on my own. And what was also and still is different about Dot Health is that we're a female majority company. And so when I would put that up onto the team page, there were two kinds of investors. One who would ask me if I was trying to make a political point by hiring females. What? And others who thought that it was really refreshing to see. And needless to say, we clearly did not take money from people who, you know, would question whether our female CTO was qualified enough. Do you ever feel yourself tired that you continually have to advocate for other women and other people of color? Because unfortunately, what it seems is that burden was always placed on people who are mm-hmm. in that, who who identify as that. Absolutely. In my previous jobs, uh, one of one of the teams I was on was called out on Twitter for not being diverse enough. So it was like someone. Oh, interesting. Someone called it out, and someone was like, "Well, you all look the same," or like, "I can't even differentiate between your executives." And one of the people at the company turned around and they said, "Have they not seen the photo of Huda?" No. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) So you just get these like, you know, almost like moral licensing trends in companies where they think, well, we hired one female of color who happens to be visibly religious and young and an engineer. Isn't that enough? Like, we don't need to hire anymore. So, you know, there's there's you get exposed to stuff like this that teaches you so much more about the fight that you do have to fight. I think we're all a bit tired. Yes. And I'm not an exception. I'm definitely, you know, there are some days where I'm just like, I just want to talk about a digital healthcare platform. I don't want to talk about how I'm a woman of color in a digital healthcare company. I just run a digital healthcare company. Yes. There's times like those, but then you always have events or people that really touch you in their experiences and how they relate to you. And that kind of makes it worthwhile. I remember I was like one of the judges at Sandbox, which is it's by the DMZ. It's it's they run a lot of kid camps. So I believe it was uh, maybe last year or earlier this year where they ran an event and it was a bunch of like six to eight year olds. And there was a girl, there's a little girl. She was six. She wore like a little like pull on headscarf and she would just like stand next to me in breaks a lot. And so I asked her her name, and she was like, no, 
I'm from Saudi Arabia too. I was like, this is, this everything is worth it. Um, yeah. Now the Acura Innovation Series. Today, the car you drive probably features a multi-valve engine, but until 1986, these more powerful and efficient engines were found mostly in cars we could only dream of driving. So what changed in 86? Acura. They brought us performance like never before, becoming the first automaker to build multi-valve engines in every car. Today, that same dedication to innovation inspires Acura in everything they do. Visit acura.ca to discover their current lineup. Tell me a little bit about what your work schedule is like day to day. Um, I get up really early, so I'm usually up at 5:40 in the morning. I actually go to the gym in this building. Which, oh, um, so this is like is home cool. to you. Yeah. This is <laughs> yeah, yeah, this familiar area. territory. Super familiar. Um, and I'll usually get in uh, to the gym at 6:30. I'll get in at work um, just before eight. Often the term CEO, you know, it's more a chief everything officer than a chief executive officer. So you do a little bit of everything that either does not have a person dedicated to it or you need to get it done or to move the business forward. We're big on not pulling all-nighters. That's a feature in most startups. Mm -hmm. And we don't believe that in the long term that's a good idea for the team. Burnout is real and impacts people in a big way. We'll try and be out of the office by um, by 7 p.m. That's usually the latest anyone will stay. And then if we, if we need to catch up uh, or if there's something that comes up, then we're all connected and can message each other on Slack. And so how do you balance uh, work and your personal life? Because you mentioned trying to avoid that burnout. Yeah, it's... Uh It's tough. I'm not good at it. <laughs> I don't. I haven't met anyone who has a down pat yet. Um, that said, I don't have kids. I'm not married. I don't have to worry about scheduling in the same way that maybe my dad did when he was starting his company and he had five kids and was responsible for their um, for their lives basically. And I don't have that, so that I think makes it a bit easier. But there are times when you know I haven't fulfilled personal commitments because of work. You know, I've forgotten or not been able to make it to friends' weddings and, you know, their important events, or I haven't been able to go to my partner's film showings. Like, there are things like that where I wish that I could be better. And as of late, my one thing I want to get better at when it comes to my personal life is to flake less on my friends. <laughs> I've noticed that I've become a bit of a flake and that is not good. Yeah. Um, the one thing you can do to show up, especially in grown-up friendships, is that's it. Showing up Showing is, up. Um, so I, I want to show up more. So now we're going to move into a section we called Rapid Fire. Uh -oh. It's fun. I promise. I promise. So all you have to do is um, answer the following questions as fast as possible. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> But it's fun. I, I promise. I second these. No, you're going to do amazing. <laughs> you're going to do amazing. Um, okay. You ready? Yes. Okay. What is your greatest fear? Of the unknown. What do you do for fun? Skydive. Oh, I'm going to come back to that. What motivates you? Um, fear. What's your perfect day off? Doing nothing. <laughs> How many hours of sleep do you get per night on Six. average? 
What three apps can't you live without? Slack, Bitwarden, which is my password manager, uh, and Messages. What's your biggest pet peeve? Um, when people chew really loudly. <laughs> Fair enough. That's also my pet peeve. Uh, last but not least, favorite sci-fi TV show or movie? Oof. Okay. I am not a sci-fi person, okay. even though I'm an engineer. <laughs> no, that was like an assumption of work. Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy counts as sci-fi, yeah? Yeah. Okay, that's a book, though. I just love those books. I, okay, that's great. Okay, I love... Uh, it's so interesting you don't know sci-fi. Is there a favorite show in general or film that you're addicted um, to? I really like The English Patient. That's probably my favorite movie. It's written by a UFT grad. I've never seen it. It's incredible. Um, next is um, what we call the big three. I'm going to ask you three questions, but you can take as much time as you as you want to answer. So you're the first in your field to do what you're doing. What's the one big mistake that you made in the past, but ultimately helped your career in the long term? I, d- I don't know if I can swear on this podcast. Yeah. So I've been responsible for building teams in tech for sort of throughout my career. And one big mistake that I made twice in one place was hiring the brilliant asshole. It's a person who's a who's a who's not a good person, but they're very good at the job that you're hiring for. They're also referred to as the the brilliant jerks often in social commentary. And they're really, really, really good at what they do. But they're they're not very thoughtful. And they are not good at teaching others in the workplace um, some of what they're doing. And they prefer to work on their own. And they're a big drag on company culture. And they will destroy your company morale and your team morale. But in the short term, they are your golden ticket mm. to you know that big deadline, to that big release that you've promised your board. So I hired two of those and never again. That is That has just molded my entire philosophy around who to hire, how to hire, um, and how to watch for signs of, of of the assholes. So even in the short term, you wouldn't hire them because of the effect they have on the rest of your team? Absolutely not, yeah. I like it. Where do you see yourself in five years? Dead Health's big vision is that everyone in the world will act as their own health information database. I think data and health information data has a lot to do with um, how we research and treat diseases today. And if you don't have complete available data, you can't make appropriate conclusions. And that's a big part of what .health is supposed to be. So I want to be more of a resource to people um, and this community, both in Toronto, but globally in tech, to help more entrepreneurs build their businesses, whether they're in my industry or in another one. Next, what piece of advice would you tell your younger self? To be patient. I give this advice to myself now all the time also. I'm a very impatient person. And Given who I am and what I look like, that often isn't, you know, that's a comment I get often from people, sometimes behind my back and sometimes to my face and not always in a, in a positive way. I think there are certain industries, processes, um, people that in order to deal with them, you need to be more patient and you need to be a bit more practical. And even though your ambition is outstripping your progress, you need that sort of check of 
being patient and trusting and having faith that things will work out if you can follow a set plan and have appropriate milestones. So just a follow up to that, do you think there's a double standard for women? Because when, um, you know, when I interview founders and they're incredibly ambitious, it's called being aggressive and it's and it's seen as a positive because they're always thinking about future goals. But you just mentioned to yourself that sometimes you have to you have to check your ambition. Yeah. And I mean, a part of this is my environment, too. So some of the feedback that I'll get versus some feedback that maybe a male counterpart would get is very different. So you're absolutely right. I do hear the, you know, oh, he's so resourceful and ambitious for, you know, some of my guy friends who are CEOs. And similarly, for some of my girlfriends who are CEOs, the opposite. Oh, she's impatient. She's very aggressive and she's very intimidating. And what's been great for me is um, we have the world's best investors. I will, I have no qualms saying that. One of our investors is a company called Bloom Burton. And Jollyon Burton, who led our deal uh, at Bloom, said, you know, and, and I said to him, you know, oh, I know I'm very impatient. I sort of said it in passing. And he said, let me stop you there. Because the other side of impatience is ambition. And nobody can fault you for having ambition. In fact, everyone from your partners to your clients to your investors should want you to be more ambitious. And it's people like that who will bring you back. Um, yeah. So skydiving. <laughs> I didn't see that coming. It's Why fun. skydiving? Because it's fun. <laughs> um, Freefall is the best feeling. It is so liberating. You sort of feel like a bird. And what is freefall and people have never... So I've experienced it jumping out of a plane. So imagine if you're jumping out of a plane and you're not being held back by a parachute. You're falling at the same pace of acceleration and your body is essentially hurtling towards the earth. This does not sound um, like But fun it is all. incredible. So um, take my word for it and or go skydiving yourself. <laughs> Doesn't matter. Um, I got into it because I saw a video on YouTube when I, was, uh, when I was younger. It was actually base jumping. So people were wearing those squirrel suits. They kind of look like a flying squirrel and they were sort of like flying in between like these beautiful green landscapes of New Zealand I remember that video and I was like hey how do I get there like how do yeah. I do that thing and I found out that in order to base jump which is harder you know not as uh, widespread as skydiving you need a hundred skydives and so I was like okay well then I need to get to 100 skydives and you fell in love with the sport it's uh, also a great community here in Canada and I got into it when I was in engineering school I took a whole group of my classmates skydiving and we all took six hours of training and then we got to jump from 7,500 feet and it was the best how many skydives have you done I'm at 67 right now Um, so not a ton I don't get to go out as much as I'd like, but I have my solo license, which means I can travel around the world and skydive, which is one of my favorite things to do also. Where is, um, I guess, your favorite place to skydive? 
Ooh, that's a toughie. There are parts in um, Florida that are quite fun because you can see the coast. There's a drop zone in California that's quite pretty. Probably my favorite is just outside of Cappadocia in Turkey. Cappadocia is the city in Turkey that has those hot air balloons. Yeah. Like a bajillion of them. And there's a drop zone where you can see them. So it's actually quite pretty. So oh, you wow. see this like incredible landscape and then you, in, you know, in a distance you can see these like floating hot air balloons. It's beautiful. What does it feel like when you actually jump out of a plane? You know that feeling when you go to like, when you go on like rides in Wonderland or something where the there's like coaster? almost like a hook in your navel? Yeah. It sort of feels like that initially. Okay. And then it's like euphoria. Like it, it, there's, a, there's a split second of panic and then it's very liberating. So it sort of feels like you're a bird. I don't know how else to no, I like it. Describe it. I can imagine, I can easily see how that would be um, a really, I think, beneficial way to de-stress. It's very that, addictive. Yeah. So once you do it <laughs> and you've gotten over that like initial fear, you kind of want to go back up again. And I remember I did a sunset dive for my first one. They don't let first time skydivers skydive at night for obvious reasons. Makes sense. Um, and I wanted to go up right away. I was like, can I please go back up? Like, just send me up at the next load. And they were like, no. But that's how addictive it is. You just want to keep doing it. How is skydiving similar to life as an entrepreneur? On some level, skydiving feels like this massive leap of faith where you're trusting on like very small equipment that is limited. So you get your rig, which has, you know, your main parachute and then it has a backup chute and then it has your like trigger handles, whatever. But that's about it. So you're sort of, you know, you're you're very alone yeah. in, in that pursuit, which is very similar to being a startup CEO. Um, it's a very lonely job in a lot of ways. And it requires a lot of trust in in what you have. So in my life as as this uh, startup executive, I have to have trust in my team, in the market, in my investors, and you know that that we will work everything out in order to grow uh, and flourish with uh, with whatever the conditions are. Yeah. In a lot more ways than one, it is a metaphor for my life. Thanks to Huda Adriz for sharing her story. Now we want to hear your story. Make sure to hit me up online. I'm at Takara Small on Twitter, or you can email the show at podcasts at globemail.com. I'll Go First is a Vocal Fry Studios production. It's executive produced by Kieran Rena and Katrina Bolak, with editorial assistance from David Michaels. For more stories of entrepreneurship, make sure to visit theglobemail.com. Subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. See you next week.